I'm a pretty passionate person, and if you've ever watched a Blazer game with me, then, then you know that already, and uh, there are certain things that I become very, very passionate about, and uh, the Blazers are one, the Dallas Cowboys are another, forgive me, but actually we, we do well with Cowboys fans in this church, and that I am thankful for. Uh, I'm really passionate about church, and especially this church, but just the topic of church in general, and I was riding home with a, a friend from Washington yesterday, and, and the topic of church came up, and by the time I knew it, we had gone from Puyallup to uh, Portland, and I don't think he had said a word because he got me talking about church and the state of uh, the church around the world. And uh, if you have ever seen a movie with, uh, with me, there's only two types of movies, the best movie I've ever seen or uh, a terrible movie. And, and if I really, if I like a movie at all, then I become passionate about it and I want you to know. And, and if I watch a TV show and I really like it, then everybody is going to know. And so I am a passionate person. And, and so for me, it's easy to be passionate about the things of God, the things even outside of God that truly and genuinely matter. But some people make a claim to just not be that passionate. Some people say, well, I'm just not a very passionate person. But the truth is, this is, I think I've seen this in just about every person. If you find the right subject or the right activity or, or the right city or the right place, then all of a sudden that unpassionate person becomes a very passionate person. You get them watching the right sporting event or watching the right movie or listening to the right music and all of a sudden they go from not very passionate to extremely passionate and it doesn't take very long at all. And I think that in America, what has happened in the church with Christians is that people have started to say, well, I, I serve God, but I'm just not very passionate about doing so. I just, you know, I care about God a little, but I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm more of a go through the motions kind of guy, and uh, I just kind of get things done. And, and what we're going to see today is that you are probably passionate, and, and Jesus is saying that maybe your passion is misguided. Now, before we look at this, let me say that by passionate, I don't mean loud, um, because oftentimes we equate those two things. Not everybody is a loud person. Not everybody is a rah-rah guy, as we would call them in the sports world that I grew up in. And, and, and you can look at people and see that there's different personalities, but every person is passionate. And what Jesus is going to say to the church uh, that we look at today, Laodicea, is that these people in this church are passionate about about the wrong things. And he flips it on their head and he tries to show them, look, hey, time out. The reason that I don't have perfect, good, nice things to say to you is because you have become passionate about everything except for me. Now, if you're new with us this morning and, and you haven't been here to follow wrong, we are looking at these seven churches in the book of Revelation. And, and what we are seeing is that Jesus has words to say to these seven churches. Today, we're looking at the last of these churches. And he is saying, look, this is what you're doing good. This is what you're doing bad. And here's what you need to do differently. And the church that he speaks to today in Laodicea apparently doesn't have a lot of good things going on. 
Last week we looked at the church in Philadelphia and it's the church that for thousands of years churches have tried to emulate and it would have been nice to end on that and I don't know why Jesus chose to put the church of Laodicea last except maybe I do because geographically it makes the most sense but it doesn't seem like the big conclusion this is how it ought to look. It's like this church is not passionate about me. But I think it's an important ending for us because we've been talking a lot and I've said in almost every sermon that I think God has big, big plans for us this year. And I think we see another aspect, a final piece, if you will, of what needs to take place in the hearts of us if we're going to see God do big, big things in us as a church. And so without further ado, here's where we begin. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write... Laodicea is southeast of Philadelphia in the Lycus River Valley. And if you've been following along, this is our map that kind of shows us the route in which the book of Revelation, the entire book, would have traveled. It went to the first church, second church, third church, fourth, all the way down. And now we are to the church in Laodicea. It's done its full circle. This is the last church to hear what Jesus has said to all the churches, but specifically to them as a church. Now here's something else we know. We know that Laodicea was at a high elevation and it overlooked the valley. It was kind of like being in the West Hills in Portland. Uh, it was a church that, uh, that looked down on really everybody else in the other cities below. And the whole city was that way. And so you can picture the West Hills. You can picture... Lake Oswego and some of the houses that sit up in the hills and these people sat in their houses and they looked down on everybody else. We know that Laodicea was a place full of pagan worship and it was to a variety of gods but specifically the god of Zeus who's kind of the big Greek god, the main Greek god. We also know, and this is really important, more than any other church by the way, I should have said this at the beginning, the background of the church in Laodicea is important to understanding what Jesus says. It's the most contextualized of his statements and you'll see what that means in just a second. But we know that they were a super, super rich town. They had a good economy and they had lots and lots of resources. It had been a wealthy banking center during the imperial dynasty and, and it still remained in power in the days of John. They had a thriving textile industry which produced soft black wool that was not just nationally famous but was internationally famous all over the world. All over the world people were buying these people's wool. They made carpets with the wool that people wanted to buy. They had a medical school in their community that produced a popular eye salve that, that people also all over the country and all over the world were using to help with blindness. And it came from something called Phrygian powder, which I just really like to say. Uh, and you applied it to your eyes in the form of a paste. Paste, excuse me. We know that in Laodicea there were gladiator games as early as 50 BC, and they had two theaters that sat 8,000 and 12,000 people respectively. That kind of shows you the money and the type of city we're dealing with, right? I mean, you don't just see theaters that have 8,000 people capacity, person capacity. That's not normal. And so we see that this area is rich. Archaeology of Laodicea, archaeology that you can get on Google right now and look up, shows us that their houses were a few thousand square feet oftentimes. And for us here in Wilsonville, Tualatin, Sherwood area, that's not a big deal. But back then, you're talking like little rooms for houses and the animals were sharing with you. 
But then when you went into Laodicea and you look at their archaeology, now you have 3,000 square feet. It's, it's much more than 100 or 200 square feet of the houses in surrounding cities. And so you get this picture. I mean, these people are loaded and they're sitting up on a hill and they're looking down on everybody else. I know in my seminary uh, studying, um, the main campus for my seminary, my master's degree was in San Francisco, and uh, it was in Mill Valley specifically. And the piece of property that my little seminary sits on uh, was the second choice for the United Nations building that is currently in New York. And I have no idea how my little seminary got this piece of property, but it always made me feel a little good, and I knew it made all the people below me mad because you could stand up on top of the hill where it sits and look out at the, at the bay and see Alcatraz out there and see the Bay Bridge out there and see the city of San Francisco, and below me are these million-dollar houses. And as a non-rich person, I'm thinking, like, how awesome is this? Like, I am above you, quite literally, and I know you wish you were in my spot right now. Uh, to, to make that continue on, they, that city is so wealthy, Mill Valley, that they, they make the seminary low-income housing to get their quota in for low-income housing. But there's something about being, and we know this, on top of the hill with a view that is better than being down in the valley. You take your house, your place of living, and all of a sudden you can see Mount Hood then you have more money than you currently do because you would have bought that view in the first place. And so Laodicea is rich, rich, rich. In fact, there's two recorded earthquakes in their history and their buildings were not earthquake-proof like we have today. And the city actually collapsed and the Roman government said, hey, we will send in the, the relief fund and we'll pay to build your city. And they were so prideful about their money that they said, no, we'll build it again ourselves. Literally turned down. Does anybody turn down government money? It's like, hey, thanks for my tax refund, but I got enough. I mean, nobody does that, right? And Laodicea is like so prideful and, and, and so wealthy, wealthy enough to have this type of pride that they just say to the emperor, thanks for the offer, but we'll put it back ourselves. We'll rebuild our 3,000 square foot houses all by ourselves. The church in Laodicea is one of Two churches, this is just interesting, it doesn't apply as much, but I found it interesting, to receive written instruction from Paul and John in the New Testament. Uh, and so the other one is, is a, the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. And we know that from Colossians 4.16, if you were to go there, you'd see that the church in Laodicea was a part of a, a kind of three three partner church situation and so the the letter of Colossians actually is meant for the church in Laodicea as well and we know uh, that this was it was the church in Colossae and the church in Hierapolis is the other one this is what we read next Revelation 3 14 these are the words of the amen the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation now if you've been around church for, you know, even a week, you've probably said the word amen. And the sad reality is a lot of people say things in church and they have no idea what they're saying. And I think that that's dangerous. Um, but, but amen is a Hebrew word, a Hebrew phrase that actually means to agree with something or to verify something. And so we say amen at the end of the prayer to, to, to say, I agree with that or this is true. 
And, and so when you hear people in a church say to a pastor, amen, they probably have no idea what they, what they are actually meaning. They're probably doing it because that's been the culture of their church. However, uh, what they're really saying or what the root of that is, I agree with what you are saying while you preach. That's really at the heart of it. And, and so when we read it here, what it is saying is that Jesus, in his very nature, is the one who verifies the accuracy of what he has said and the gospel and the things of God. When Jesus came to earth, he declared that the God of the universe was true and the words of the Bible are accurate. This is also in this phrase, the faithful and true witness. But if you've been here and you studied along and you followed along, we know that this is a big phrase in the book of Revelation, the faithful and true witness. To be a witness is to be somebody who testifies and shows the gospel to be true. And throughout the book of Revelation, this specifically refers to people who are willing to die for their faith in Jesus, that he died to save people from their sins. Jesus was the first of the faithful and true witnesses because Jesus had an opportunity to call a legion of angels, that's what he says, to get out of the cross, to do something else. But he knew that the mission of his father was so important and so valuable and the right thing to do to save fallen sinful humans that Jesus said, yeah, it's true, and he hung on a cross to make it so. And so when you're reading the book of Revelation, if you were in the first century and you have a chance at dying at the hands of people and they're going to say are you a Christian and you have a right to say yes or no it's good to remember that Jesus was the first one who declared this is true my message is true I'm willing to die for it the God of the universe is true I'm willing to die for it now this is really important because what we'll find in this church in Laodicea is that they they are not proving the gospel true They are in fact showing the world that it might not be true by their very lifestyles and by their lack of focus on Jesus. And then it tells us that Jesus is the ruler of God's creation. This is so important in in our modern society, I don't think I could overstate it. In our current culture, I think there's this attitude about Jesus that says, yes, he was a nice guy, he was a hippie, he loved people, I think he's pretty cool, but I'm not going to serve and follow him. And when they do that, they think, I'm just simply saying I'm not going to serve and follow a guy who died a couple thousand years ago and loved everybody and would love me even though I'm not going to follow him and be obedient to him. But Jesus is not some hippie guy that lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus is a little bit of a hippie guy that lived 2,000 years ago, died, rose again, and then sits at the right hand of the Father where he rules everything. There is nothing that you know that is not under the control of and power of the one that we call Jesus. And the truth is, when people reject Jesus, they don't reject some dead guy that has no power or no authority or does not live anymore. They reject the one who rules everything that they know and that they ought to be obedient to to because of that truth. And so when you think of Jesus, and it's hard, even in Christian circles, I think me and you, we picture like, yeah, Jesus, nice guy. It's like we picture this non-powerful guy, and as I said a couple weeks ago, he's, he has a halo over his head, and he has beautiful blue eyes and long, pretty hair, and he's holding everybody's lambs and making sure that they're happy. And, and, and then like when we think about being obedient, when I choose whether or not to commit this sin or do this thing that I think Jesus is asking me to do, it's like just hanging out with the sheep, man. What a, it's not a big deal. 
And until we see Jesus as the ruler of God's creation, we cannot rightfully serve and worship him. Jesus continues after identifying himself. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, excuse me, neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For whatever reason, this is a pretty famous passage in Scripture. This is one, along with what we'll get to in just a couple of moments, that you've probably, if you've been in church very much at all, you've probably heard this phrase before, these phrases. And here's the interesting part about this. Oftentimes, we put our understanding of hot and cold into this. And so usually when this passage is preached and taught, the way that it's preached and taught is that you need to be on fire for Jesus. You need to be hot for Jesus. You need to be excited about Jesus. And if you're not, if you're cold, if you've let your love for God run dry and you, you're really not serving him and you're not passionate about him, then you're on the cold end and Jesus won't like it very much. But that's not the reality of what Jesus is saying here because Jesus says, I wish you were either hot or cold. It's a weird thing to say if we're talking about how on fire you are for God. Like, I'd rather that you just hated me. And that's not at all what Jesus means. You see, here's the situation in Laodicea. They had major, major water problems. Um, they had a couple of problems, actually. And the first was, they were up on the hill. This is, as I said before, they're up on this hill. And they don't have modern ability. Here's the hill. And they look down on everybody else. And here we are sitting in a typical Laodicea home, let's say. There's no water where they sit. And so they had to figure out a way to get themselves water. And so they built an aqueduct. And one of the problems with their aqueduct is that part of it could not be below ground. And so down here in the valley, it was really susceptible to enemy attack. I mean, if you cut off somebody's water supply, then you're going to win a battle, right? And so all an enemy had to do was come down here and just, you know, saw through the aqueduct or however it was going to look. And all of a sudden, these people up on the hill are going to have to give in to your demands and they're going to lose the battle. So that was one major problem. But for the people reading the book of Revelation, that was not the first problem that came to mind in their water supply. The problem that came to mind is that they could not get hot or cold water. And in fact, we know today that the water that they received was absolutely Horrible. There's been sediments found in it, and, and there's tons in the in the current excavation of this archaeology site, archaeological site. They they find tons of Lyme disease in this aqueduct, or Lyme uh, in this aqueduct, not Lyme disease, Lyme in this aqueduct, and that means the water is really, really bad. And so these people are sitting up on this hill and they're looking down and down in this valley actually we know that there was a hot springs that people would travel to for remedial purposes. They would travel there to get healthier and uh, they would make them feel better. And you understand that from like taking a bath when you're sick or getting in the shower after your allergies have been too bad. That's me. It, It just or getting in a hot tub when your muscles are sore. And so they're looking down and down here is this hot springs where people are traveling around as a little resort in order that their bodies can feel better. If you flip and you look behind these people, you would see a mountain range. And in this mountain were waterfalls that had beautiful cold water. And most water sources start in the hills, right? And, and so right up here is all the sources of every bottle of water that you've ever had, at least according to the label, right up here. But here they sit unable to get access to this water. 
And so the water gets to them, and it's disgusting tasting, and it's not hot so that they can take a bath, they can make coffee, they can make tea, or it's not cold enough that they can be refreshed, they can jump in and on a hot day and enjoy drinking it. Now, I don't want to throw all wealthy people under the bus, but you've known some wealthy people probably that have an attitude that suggests they deserve anything that they want. In fact, if you're an American, you probably have a little bit of that attitude, but it's, it, it grows with the more money that you have. Now picture sitting here in your Lake Oswego home, looking down on everybody with your wonderful view, the mountain range behind you, your 3,000 square foot house, you're a doctor, you have friends who sell wool all over the world, and there's people under them, and the people are maybe are coming from other places to work, and, the, and, the, you know, and you're just sitting around, and you're going to movies, and you have these wonderful theaters, but you can't get a cold drink of water. That frustrates you every single day, right? I mean, you are... are going to be absolutely annoyed by that truth. I have the best theater. I have the best healthcare. I have the best house. I have everything. But man, I can't get a drink of water. You just imagine like being in Beverly Hills, but without the ability, like cold water not being there because they hadn't figured that out in the LA area. Can you just imagine like how that's going for like Hollywood actresses and actors and, and producers and the, the really wealthy and esteemed of our world today? That is going to be something that is a major first world problem. I mean, that is going to be at the top of their list of things that are bad in life and they're gonna sit around and after the movie's over, they're gonna complain about it and they're gonna be upset about it and like, I just wish I could get a cup of water, man the most annoying thing. And so when you see Jesus' words, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, cold, nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. It changes it. And what it really means is not that these people aren't on the proverbial fire. They don't, it's not like they just have these feelings of, oh, I'm so excited about Jesus. You know, just be excited. Acquire the fire. We name like so many ministries after this kind of idea. There's other places for it. But after this idea of just being on fire for the Lord, Jesus isn't saying that at all. He's not talking about their emotional state and their kind of feelings towards him. They're saying, he's saying, you are absolutely useless to me. You are useless. And so I want to spit, and the word could more accurately be translated vomit forth or spew. I want to vomit forth you from my mouth because you're not doing anything for me. You don't matter to me. There's no point of you being a church. Nothing is getting done on my behalf or for my glory or for my fame. Nothing. And so I want to reject you. Now, when we see vomit out of Jesus' mouth, spew out of Jesus' mouth, it would be easy for us to kind of equate the idea of a really eternal uh, rejection and, and really just Jesus says, no more relationship with you. And, and that was something that seemed to be alluded to more in other passages. But here, as we'll see in a minute, this is not referring to that. In fact, it seems to just be saying, I will remove my presence from your midst. I will remove you from my presence, and we'll see why in just a few minutes. And so here's the question before we move on. Are you useful to Jesus, or are you useless? I mean, just think about your 
daily life and the things that you do and the things that you focus on and, and, and your interactions with people and how you approach work and just say, are, are you useful or are you useless? The next two verses, Jesus really shows us why these people have become useless to him. Here's what he says in verses 17 and 18. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. You see what Jesus does here? Is it pretty clear at this point? He turns everything that they know and they love physically around on them and says, you have made that more important than the spiritual things, the things that truly and genuinely matter. I mean, here you are. You're a professional athlete. You're a doctor. You're an actor. And and he says, you say you are rich and that you have acquired wealth. Obviously, right? I mean, we can look at our bank accounts and know if that's true or not. And that you don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, and poor. He looks at him and says, you are poor spiritually because, it seems, you are so focused on the physical things that you have. These people are looking at their houses and their theaters and their careers and and they have forgotten about the things of Jesus. Jesus says, look, you think you're rich, but you're not. You're, You're poor. He looks at me and says, you're wretched, which means... It means that they are in hardship or they are in a severe, bad um, bodily state. And, and so he's looking at him like, look, you think you're healthy, but you're not healthy at all. And then he says to them, and this is just think about, contextualize this here with me. He says that what they ought to do to not be poor, blind, and naked is to buy gold. These people have lots of money. Money's not an issue, but he spiritualizes. He says, look, you're more focused on your actual gold than the real gold, the stuff from me that matters, the spiritual nature. And then he tells them that to, to stop being naked, they need to buy white clothes. They're an internationally known city for producing black wool. And you can't think that these people don't get what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you're so focused on your textile industry and the money that comes from it and the benefits of being wealthy and rich and sitting up on the hill that you have forgotten me and the things of me. And so buy white clothes, buy purity from me. And then he says, put salve on your eyes. I mean, I'm telling you, people all over the world are coming here to help with their eyesight problems based on this paste, this salve that they are making. And they get a letter sitting in church that says, put salve on your eyes. They're not missing the idea here. They're hearing it loudly and clearly. And Jesus is saying, you have become so focused on the things that this world has to offer, the physical stuff that you can taste, see, smell, and hold on to, that you have totally forgotten about me and your relationship with me. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to these people, look, you've lost your focus, and it's made you utterly useful. And man, I'm telling you, It's not hard to see the connection to church in America today. It's not hard at all. You look at the majority almost of people in the modern American church and what you see 
is a lot of people who will show up on a Sunday morning and then they go about the rest of the week as if everything on this world matters. They fill their time simply with the relationships that will benefit them, make them look good. They spend their time in jobs trying to make more money or get elevated. They spend their effort and their thoughts and their emotions all on things that ultimately will not matter. And we've built our full confidence about this, right? Think about what you stress about. Do you stress about the fact that your friends are going to hell or do you stress about the fact that you might not get a raise next year? I mean, do you stress about growing spiritually and removing sin from your life or or do you stress about what you're gonna eat tomorrow? Do you stress and worry and think and and are passionate about, about helping others live more fully for Jesus? Or do you just wish you had a little nicer car? I mean, think about your thought process and and what you think about and care about and are passionate about on a daily and weekly and yearly basis and ask yourself, is it all the stuff that's surrounding you that you can hold on to, that you can look at, that you can enjoy, or is it the things of God? Because if it's not the things of God, then maybe you have become useless to Jesus. There is good news in that statement because in Revelation 3, 19 and 20, Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Jesus is saying, this is not about me hating you. This is about, not about me not wanting you to have your next meal or not wanting you to get a raise or not wanting you to have a new car. It's not about that. I, I, Jesus is saying, I will spit you out of my mouth, not because I hate your guts, but because I love you and I want to see you living the life that I have called you to and that is absolutely best for you when it comes to eternity. Jesus didn't make rules or enforce rules because he wants you to like have to follow along and fill out a checklist and be bored in your life. He made the rules and he enforces the rules in your life and disciplines you when you disobey the rules because Jesus loves you. And he wants what is best for you and he wants his kingdom to expand and he wants to be glorified and he knows that it's all wrapped up in you and us as a church being obedient to him. And then he says these two words that are really, really important. He says, be earnest and repent. The word repent has come up a lot in this sermon series. The word repent is a word that means to have a changing of mind that leads to a changing in attitude, a changing of heart. The other word earnest means to be zealous and it is a passionate desire for something. Jesus looks at this church and says, if you want to be useful to me, then you need to think more like me and You need to be passionate about me, not about the theater, not about medicine, not about textiles, not about your careers, not about your beautiful houses, not about your wealthy friends, not about your great view, but about me. Jesus is saying, look, you can't honor me and expect me to honor you and be in your presence if you're not going to start thinking like me and about the stuff that I think about. And we know what Jesus thought about his whole life, right? I mean, Jesus thought about 
saving people and helping them live more fully for him. And every ounce of what we know about him is that he taught and showed people what it was to live a godly life. And then at the end of it, he died because he realized people and knew people wouldn't always live a godly life and they would need salvation and that they did need salvation through him. He says, think about those things, helping people live for me and love me and serve me fully. And think about the fact that people are going to hell if they don't know me as their savior. And then he says, be passionate. Be passionate. And I think this is where we as a church, the American church culture falls extremely Short. I think we are so much like the church in Laodicea where we are passionate about a lot of stuff, but we are not passionate about the things of Jesus. And again, I don't mean rah rah guy. I don't mean that you're the one who's, you know, uh, dancing or you're the one who's singing extra loud, but something inside of us, Jesus is saying, must be earnest, must be passionate, must care with a Strong desire about the things that he cares about. And that is the mission that we have talked about in this series. Helping every person to know Jesus and fully obey the teachings of Jesus. I'm telling you. It's really easy to see that even within the church today. People are not very passionate about Jesus. And I can't help but wonder if we see the declining numbers in the American church Because people are not passionate about him. You already know what they're passionate about, right? It's pretty easy. Just look at Facebook for just, you know, five minutes and you'll see it. They're passionate about movies. Our culture is passionate about movies. Our culture is passionate about sports. Our culture is passionate about politics. And that doesn't equate to being passionate about Jesus, I hate to tell you. Our our culture is passionate uh, about feeling good. Our church is passionate about equality. Uh, I mean, not our church, I'm sorry. Our culture is passionate about equality. And our, our culture is not passionate about Jesus. And that applies even to the people who are Christians. And Jesus is looking at this church and saying, you've been caught up in all the things of culture. Everything else that your neighbors who are not Christians are, are caught up in, you're caught up in it too. And I think he would say the same thing to the majority of us. I think he would say the same thing to many of us in this room even today. You are passionate about something, but you are not passionate about me. And Jesus is saying it's time for that to change. I want you to be passionate about me. He says, if anyone hears his voice and opens the door, he will come in and eat with that person and they with him. Very famous verse. You may have this hanging on a wall at some point in your life. You may have grown up with this on your grandparents' walls or some older Christian person in your life. And normally when we read it, we think about the people who are not Christians. And usually when this passage, this verse right here is talked about or thought about, we, we, we apply it to those who don't know Jesus. And we say, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. 
And if you would just let him in, then you could be in relationship with God. And that's an okay understanding of it, but it kind of takes Christians off the hook. And specifically, this is not referring to those who aren't Christians. It's referring to those who are. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be in a relationship with him where he's hanging out with you and where you have fellowship with him and where he's listening to your prayers and he's answering your prayers and he's interacting with you, then what you need to do is repent and be passionate, earnest zealous for him. You see, Jesus is knocking today and he's saying, hey, you, Chad, are passionate about things, but are you passionate about me? And if you choose not to open the door and you keep that door closed and you just keep being passionate about everything else, then you still may be a Christian, but you are not going to be a Christian who has the fellowship, the relationship, the interaction with Jesus, the God of the universe that you claim to love and follow as a Christian. You see, this passage is okay to apply to non-Christians because it's true. And if you're not a Christian, then I say to you, Jesus is at the door of your heart this morning and he's knocking and he wants you to become a Christian, have your sins removed and look forward to an eternity in heaven. That's absolutely true. But when we strictly apply it to those who don't know Jesus, then we think, well, I can just go through life not very passionate about God and it'll be okay because I'm still a Christian. But Jesus is saying, if you want a deep level of intimacy and interaction with him, then it requires you repenting if you're not in this place already, changing your mind and being passionate about him. He concludes in 21, verse 21, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. He will give the right to people to rule and reign with him. And many of these promises at the end of these sections to these churches have been kind of general to all Christians, but we can't help but wonder based on what we see in the rest of scripture about how the disciples, the first 12 disciples were going to rule and reign with Jesus. We can't help but wonder if Jesus is saying, look, if you are passionate about me now, then good news, you're going to have a great seat in heaven and I will give you more responsibility there. I will give you more power and privilege in eternity if you will listen to me now. And then in verse 22, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the truth this morning. What I want you to hear, what I want you to pay attention to is that you need to be zealous, passionate, have strong feelings and aspirations to serve God. God, if you call yourself a Christian, it's not good enough. If you really value the relationship with God that he has offered you through Jesus, it's not good enough to simply go, yeah, I'll go through the motions, but all this other stuff is going to take my passion. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be sports and it's going to be more money and it's going to be more popularity and it's going to be cars and it's going to be movies and it's going to be these hobbies of mine. That's not good enough in Jesus' eyes. He's just going to want to spit you out of his presence. But if you will become passionate about him, he promises to come in and interact with you. I just look at this church, and I've been around this church for for quite a while now, and you know I've been the pastor three years, and and not until this sermon series did I start saying, look, we're going to start growing, and we're going to start baptizing people, and we're going to start doing things that are incredible through the power of Jesus And it's because I believe that that time is now. And and a big part of that time being now 
is you being passionate. Man, we have such a faithful congregation. The people that sit in front of me, we have been through so many ups and downs as a church in the years that I have been at this church. I mean, so many. And, and you, if you're still sitting here, you are faithful. You are very faithful. And most of you are not compromising your faith as, as we saw in some of these passages while the American church mind and many Christians are just kind of half-hearted serving God. I don't think most of you fall into that category. And while many churches are allowing false teaching to come into the church and if Jesus was gonna say something to the American church, he might say, look, too, mu too much false teaching in the church. Too much, too much. I can't be in your presence. That's not true with this church. We cling tightly to truth and I think we teach truth and we show truth to the world. We are a very faithful church, and I am so grateful for that. But it is time for us to take another step. Our world needs more faithful churches, but those faithful churches will never cause the world to be drawn in if they are not also passionate, earnest churches. And so I think, and we'll talk about this at our annual meeting on July 20th, I believe we set a date for that. Uh, it is time for us to move past faithful, not throwing faithful out, not saying we're done being faithful, but to say we're going to be faithful and true and hold tightly to Jesus, but we also are going to be passionate, passionate about the things of Jesus, leading every person to a relationship with him and every person to full and utter obedience to what he taught. And so this morning I ask, just in your heart, just right now as you stand and sit in front of me, just to ask yourself, and I'm gonna pray in just a second, just to ask yourself if you are passionate about Jesus or if you are passionate about something else. And if you say, wow, I know the four things that I'm really passionate about and Jesus doesn't fit on that list. He's not in that agenda. He doesn't get my time. He doesn't get my abilities. He doesn't get my money. And all of that goes somewhere else. And my feelings are all about getting better in this area or whatever. Just today I ask that you repent. And you look at Jesus with fresh and new eyes and say, Jesus, you were passionate about me. You died on a cross for me. You saved me from my sins, and, and therefore, I want to be passionate about you too. When you know the love of Jesus, when you know the grace of Jesus, when you know the power of Jesus in your life, and I hope all of you do, when you know it, then it must make you passionate. It's more important than any good sporting event. It's more important than any good movie. It's more important than a raise. It's more important than a career. It's more important than popularity. Will you pray with me? Lord, I believe you're going to do great things in this church. I do, God. And it's because I believe these people are so faithful. And I believe it's because these people have in them, through their faithfulness and in their love to you, the ability, the capacity to be passionate about you. And God, as a church in this next year, we are really going to be upping the ante of what we call people to, what we ask people for. And I'm well aware, God, that no matter how well we talk about things, no matter how well we advertise things, no matter how great of a plan we have, God, at this church, it does not matter if we collectively are passionate about leading people to you and seeing people be obedient to you so that you, God, 
might be glorified amongst all the nations. Jesus, I pray right now, this morning, that you would that you would speak to people's hearts, God, that you would touch the minds and the hearts of the people who sit in front of me and stand behind me and and you would reveal to them, God, any area of their life where they're too passionate that is not you. God, I believe you want us to enjoy things that many things that come from you are wonderful blessings. That God, there are so many people who have wealth and prosperity and fame that love you and are extremely passionate about you. And, And so God, I don't, at all, I'm not at all, God, wanting people to hear that, that you hate those things. But I do think you hate the things that pull us away from you. And so, God, if there's anything in any of us that is pulling us away from our passion for you, that is getting in the way of our excitement level for you and our desire to, to strongly serve you well, then I pray that you would reveal that to us this morning and that we would repent and we would make you the absolute center of our lives. I pray these things in your name. Amen.